You're listening to the Melting Podcast. A little of everything from everyone, everywhere. With your host, AF Grappen. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 3 of the Melting Podcast. I'd like to welcome you back to another Stoke the Fire episode. This is going to be a good one. This is for prompt number two, which is, A common household object isn't what it seems. We've got three stories for you. This kind of makes me think of, those of you who listen to the Drabblecast, when they have their trifecta episodes, when they've got three stories by three different offers all based off the same theme, that is what I've been trying to go for with these Stoke the Fire episodes. So I'm really hoping I'm going to start getting some more submissions in to help make these Stoke the Fire episodes a lot more common, a lot more varied, just that much better. That said, this is going to be a great episode. I've got uh, stories by the wonderful Nobilis Reed. I've got one by Jelaine Hughes and Scott Roche, who you heard in episode one with a main ingredient story. So we've got three very different voices here telling three very different stories that I think are just absolutely great. So we're just going to go ahead and start you off with Nobilis' story. Inside by Nobilis Reed. Okay, so everyone's heard of the girl that fell down the rabbit hole, of course. And those kids in England found a wardrobe that had a dimensional gateway leading to a whole other world where they became kings and queens of a land full of fantastic creatures and deep magic. And that guy in California found a video arcade game that got him out to defend the galaxy from an alien invasion. There's a book that has a window onto this island with all kinds of funky sculptures on it that will take you there if you touch the image. I even heard of a housewife that found a way back to 18th century Scotland. Lucky stiffs. My portal is completely worthless compared to those. I mean, it's convenient, I'll give you that. Unlike the others, it's easy to get to, and it's always open. All I have to do is step into my fridge, and I come out of this other fridge somewhere else. It's lots easier to manage than getting top score in a video game, or waiting for some special alignment of stars. The problem is that the fridge on the other side of the portal is in New Jersey. It sits in an abandoned rest stop on I-295, and I swear to God it's called the Howard Stern Rest Stop. It's all fenced off, and there's graffiti all over the place, and you do not want to go into the restrooms, trust me. I suppose I could use the space for storage, but I'm pretty sure that kids get in there on a regular basis, and I don't want anyone poking their noses into the fridge and finding their way to my house. That would be a disaster. I tried to call up every scientist I could find to maybe sell them the thing, but of course, they all thought I was a nutcase. Howard Stern wasn't interested either, but more because he wanted to forget the whole rest stop debacle than because he thought I was a crank. I mean, listen to his show. So that's why I rented the pickup truck, humping the thing into the back, and drove all the way out here to middle-of-nowhere Burlington, New Jersey, and cut my way through the fence. See, the fridge in the rest stop is one of those big commercial jobbies with two doors that runs floor to ceiling, and mine is a little one. So now that I shoved it into the big fridge, it disappeared. It's inside itself now. 
I thought maybe something bad would happen when it went through, but the big fridge just shuddered a little, and that was that. So either I did something awesome, or else I got rid of the stupid thing forever. So what do you say, officer? Want to come with me? Because I'm going to go through and see where it leads now. I, I want that refrigerator. Man, I seriously, I want a sequel to this story, and I want to know where it goes. Nobilis, this was an absolutely wonderful story, a joy to read, so thank you for this. We're going to go ahead and move on to our second story, which is read to you by Aaron Kazmark. The Polymer Pattern by Jelaine Hughes When the Heathrow Express pulled into Paddington Station in London, Lexi pulled out her trusty Dairy Queen red plastic spoon. The balcony where she was finishing her lunch served as a fabulous observation deck for what she needed to do. A cooing pigeon waddled past her feet in a vain search for crumbs, but Lexi ignored it and focused on the people coming off the train onto the platform below. She felt the adrenaline rush that always came with zeroing in on a target. Taking a deep breath, she wrapped her fingers around the spoon's handle and slowly rotated it as if it were a tiny satellite dish. Then she closed her eyes. The whole spectrum of human feeling lay before Lexi like a tapestry. As the spoon tuned in on different people, she sensed different emotions. Some were happy, some sad, some grieving. They all wove together into something that resembled a pattern. It was her job to find irregularities. The black ops organization Lexi worked with neutralized those irregularities. She gave the spoon a slight adjustment and swept the station again. The spoon picked up some small imperfections. Lexi expected these. They were part of the larger pattern. Her task was to discern the out-of-control anomalies that could tear the very fabric of humanity apart. The destruction of Pompeii, the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages, and more recently the Holocaust were examples of what could happen when the pattern was disrupted. Lexi scanned the station again. There it was. Lexi squeezed the handle. When she opened her eyes, she saw a fading pulse of energy that showed her exactly where the spoon was focused. Her mouth formed a crooked smile. She'd never have spotted that one with normal surveillance techniques. Lexi picked up her phone from the table. Target subject is an elderly lady, medium height, medium build, gray hair, and walks with a cane. Red blouse, purple hat, asked the voice on the other end. That's the one. Already, she could see another member of her unit moving toward the old bat. Then the server brought dessert, and Lexi used her trusty Dairy Queen plastic spoon for its other special purpose, to eat ice cream. She now lived in London, but Lexi grew up in an American household. Her frugal mother washed and reused everything, from plastic sandwich bags to aluminum foil, at a time when curbside recycling was unheard of. So, of course, Mom faithfully saved the little red plastic spoons from the family's rare trips to the local Dairy Queen. One spoon was Lexi's favorite. It had a funny V-shaped mark on its handle. She liked it because its edges were perfectly smooth. Others inevitably had one or two rough nibs that always caught on her lip. This spoon was one she could use without adding any bodily substances to what she consumed. That by itself was enough to put any spoon on her favorite utensil list, but she soon found out what it could really do. One spring evening, Lexi and her sisters were eating chocolate pudding with their trusty red spoons. Her youngest sibling finished hers first and eyed what was left of Lexi's. You have to share, she demanded. Mom, make her share. This happened all the time. 
Lexi rested her arms on the table, one hand holding the spoon upright, and waited for the scene to play out. No, you've had your share, Meryl. It's all gone, said Mom. That's Lexi's. Maybe if you took your time, yours would last longer. A split second before Meryl threw her usual temper tantrum, Lexi felt a strange spike of something that seemed to echo her sister's anger. Out of reflex, her hand squeezed the handle of the spoon, and a pulse of energy that nobody else seemed to notice zoomed from the spoon through the air toward the younger girl, sparkled on her head for a moment, then faded. She had no idea how something like that could have happened. Maybe something got into the polymer manufacturing process that set this particular piece of plastic apart. Whatever the cause, Lexi experimented with this oddity over the next several weeks, and found it highly useful. Even better, the thing seemed to be indestructible, making it even more valuable. She carried it with her everywhere. Not only could she use it to avoid someone who was angry, she could also bypass those annoying happy people when she was feeling sorry for herself. Lexi was jolted from her reverie by a slight shake of the spoon. She swallowed the ice cream that was on it and held it in its survey position. There was another irregularity in the pattern. A much larger one this time. When she opened her eyes, the fading energy pattern pointed out, Wait, that couldn't be right. She tried again. It pointed out the man in her unit who was closing in on the old woman. As he approached her, Lexi twisted the spoon back and forth between the two of them. The pattern irregularity in her was still there, but Lexi had the sense of a far larger tangle when she focused on her unit member. It definitely hadn't been there before. But something about this encounter created a large anomaly that centered on him. She examined it more closely. Her breath caught and she opened her eyes wide. This was not just a big anomaly. This was a catastrophic pattern interruption. There was only one thing she could do. Lexi pulled her trusty plastic knife out of her pocket and aimed at her colleague. One press of the dull knife blade sent a tiny bullet from the thick black end of the utensil to his torso. He fell backward as if he'd been punched and lay on the ground, not moving. The old woman took one look at the gathering crowd, turned the other way, and slipped out of Paddington Station like a salmon swimming upstream. Lexi was pretty sure the man would live. She could ask questions later, and they'd have to catch the old woman another time. Catastrophe averted, Lexi pocketed the plastic knife, grasped her plastic spoon, and went back to her ice cream. You know, my mom used to save all those spoons, too. We always had a little pile of still-in-there plastic, plastic utensils from Burger King, Wendy's, wherever. I can totally, totally identify with that story. I have yet to be able to sense anybody's emotions with plastic utensils, but I guess that's why it's a story, right? Um, moving on to the final story of this little trifecta, and this one's going to be read to you by Theo Kazmark. Cardboard Time Machine by Scott Roche The day Jed's doorbell rang changed his life forever. He answered it and there awaited what he would call the box. It was a simple thing made up of cardboard and tape. On it, the words Time Machine were scrawled in a child's handwriting. He brought it inside, thinking of doing nothing more than throwing it in the recycle bin the following day. It proved to be heavier than he thought it would. He grunted with the exertion and stopped with it in the middle of the living room floor. Who was at the door? His lover Mel asked as he came down the stairs, toweling his bald head. Dunno. Someone left this box on our door. 
Jed stood beside it, scratching his ear. If he'd stood behind the strange object, it would have concealed his five-foot frame. Mel hung the tower from the banister, in spite of the fact that he knew it pissed Jed off. Open it. I was about to do just that. Jed fished the small pocket knife from his jeans and flipped the blade open. How are you feeling after your shower? He cut the tape and rather than stand on tiptoe, ran the blade down one corner. Better. Stomach still feels rotten. Damn chemo. The blade got a third of the way down the box when he ran into a place he couldn't cut through. He closed the blade and grabbed the corner. With the heave that he hoped was manly, he ripped down and out. The flash of energy blinded him, and he felt himself fly backwards to the air. He hit what he thought was a wall of his apartment, and then blacked out. He didn't know how long it was before he woke up, but when he did, the sun was just beginning to rise. The stars were beginning to be washed out by a pale pink light. He put his hands down to push himself off the floor, and it felt spongy. Stars? he muttered to himself. He got to his feet, rubbing the back of his head. The smell that filled the air around him reminded him of the swamps of eastern North Carolina. Mel. Hey, Mel. He started to get worried. Somehow he'd gotten outside, and not just outside, but in a place that looked nothing like even the rural parts of Virginia they now called home. The plants were too swampy, though not the ones he was vaguely familiar with. The ferns were massive, and the palm trees would have been more at home in Florida. Panic tightened his chest. Where am I? Okay. Don't freak out. The ground was covered in leaf litter and lush grass. He moved slowly in a circle and saw that the only path out looked like a broad game trail. Something huge had stomped the ferns flat. Thick cloud cover made the air even more humid than it had been the night before. When the sun was directly overhead, this day would truly suck. Itching to make progress before that happened, he walked toward the game trail. He used his knife to cut a five-foot-long section from a stand of bamboo that he passed. He sharpened one end to a point and pocketed the knife. Having it made him feel a bit safer, though what it was supposed to protect himself from, he didn't know. Jed made it about thirty yards before he fell into a depression about six inches deep. He hadn't been paying close attention to where he'd been setting his feet. The wild and rich plant life fascinated him to the point of distraction. He'd never seen anything like it before. One fern had a frond almost as long as his arm. Another plant had massive purple blooms his whole head would fit in. He used the bamboo spear to stand and looked at the pothole he found himself in. The pothole was shaped like a truly massive three-toed footprint. He could have lain down in it and not had his head or feet touch the ends. What the hell? He looked around and didn't see the creature it belonged to. This is a dream. I'm still in my living room. Hell, Mel is probably trying to perform mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. He pinched himself. Ouch. Okay, that didn't work. He saw a hill not too far away. Maybe if I climb that, I can find out where I am. He made it to the top after much exertion and hacking through the underbrush with his inadequate and now mostly dull pocket knife. Hillocky's swampland stretched out as far as he could see in every direction. And that didn't shock or surprise him as much as the large, colorful lizard. He supposed it was a dinosaur, and in his boyhood, he would have been able to say what kind it was. Fear made that impossible. He wanted to scream, but it stuck in his throat. That was probably a good thing for him. He backed away from it, moving down to the bottom of the hill, and when he reached the base, he fell to the ground and rolled up into a ball. 
He didn't know how long he lay there, but eventually he noticed that someone was tapping him on the shoulder. Dude, you really need to get up and come with me. You shouldn't be here. The blonde boy's spiky hair didn't move in the slight breeze. He looked across Jed's body at someone. No use. Pick him up and take him back to the time machine. Strong arms, covered in dense, sleek fur, encircled him and picked him up as though he weighed no more than a child. Jed closed his eyes and let himself be carried. He'd snapped. That must be it. He was being taken to the psych ward in an ambulance. The person who carried him smelled strongly of musk and reminded him of Sparky, the tabby he had when he was a kid. I told you that giving that time machine to an adult was a bad idea. His words were slightly muffled. Shut up, Chowderhead. How could I have known you tried to cut it to pieces? The massive creature put Jed down softly on what felt like a cardboard floor. Keep your eyes shut, dude. You don't have safety goggles, and the pair I left for you are still at your apartment. Jed had no trouble obeying that particular order. The sounds he heard were hard for him to describe, but reminded him of a noise Grandma's vacuum cleaner made when it threw a belt. Sometime later, the sound eased, and he felt himself be moved again. You could open your eyes, the boy's voice assured him. If it's all the same to you, I'd rather not. Jed shook his head slowly. You're home. We'll send you another time machine if you promise to use it wisely. Just make sure it's pointed in the right direction when you want to take off. The tiger's words, he would be a tiger, wouldn't he? Were tinged with aggravation. You're never going to let me live that down, are you? There was a brief pause. If you think you'll use it, we'll send you a new one. I wanted to know if it would work for adults, and Dad wouldn't bite. So I picked someone from the phone book. You won. Let's go, Hobbs. The vacuum cleaner fired up again, and the sound died away. The next voice he heard belonged to Mel. Are you just going to stand there all night, or are you going to tell me where the hell you've been? Jed opened his eyes and turned around. Mel's eyes were bloodshot, and he had bags under them. Jed ran and threw his arms around him. God, I've missed you so much. I've missed you too. Mel squirmed free and took his lover by the arms. Where were you? What happened? Jed shook his head. I don't know that you'll believe me. Try me. I was thrown backwards in time. He described the whole experience and showed him the clay on his boots. It wasn't nearly enough until the new time machine materialized beside them. Assuming we haven't both lost our minds, Mel looked at the large cardboard box with its childish scrawl on one side. Where do you want to go? He put a hand on Jed's arm. Forward. Some place where we can finally get married and I can put you on my insurance. I've lived with enough dinosaurs for a lifetime. I love Calvin and Hobbes. When I first got that submission, it wasn't until that very end that I realized that we'd just run into Calvin and Hobbes. So that, Scott, was absolutely amazing. We're going to take a quick break to promote another awesome podcast or audiobook. Hi, I'm Norm Sherman, host of the Drabblecast, the weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners. We do sci-fi, fantasy, horror. We do funny, strange, and gross. The short stories that your favorite authors were too embarrassed to send to anyone else. I mean, where else are you going to hear things like this? Christ, Terry, what the hell is that thing? I don't know. 
but it ain't no speckled perch. I can tell you that much. It was a prank. A little kidnapping. Not dolphin aside. Emperor Mertzatz clenched his fists. I'll get that panda! The Drabblecast. Short. Fun. Different. Check us out at Drabblecast.org. So now I think you can get the idea of what I'm really trying to do here. This is really what I was wanting to get going with the Melting Podcast. So please, please send in submissions for Stoke the Fire episodes. This prompt, prompt number two, is still open. So if you have some inspiration to write a story about a common household object that isn't what it seems, please send it my way. Um, do want to go ahead and let you know that prompt number one is now closed. We are now opening prompt number three, which is each food in your refrigerator has a different effect on your mental health. This one, I'm really interested in seeing what's going on, so probably going to keep that one open for a couple of months, just trying to let let things go. Um, prompt two will be closing at the end of the month. So please get your stories about common household objects in by the end of October. For those of you who are interested, NaNoWriMo is starting in a month. So our next episode will be dropping on November 1st. So the first day of NaNo, you will get another Melting Podcast episode. So whenever you take a break from your wordly duties, tune in. Our next episode is going to be a main ingredient episode, and this one is going to be a biggie. Um, There's going to be a guest voice that I really hope you recognize. But going back to NaNoWriMo, um, I have been debating with this all year. I will be participating. I'm not going to be going for a, a ridiculous record this year. I'm not trying to brag, but my last two NaNoWriMo's have yielded over 100,000 words, and that just wears me out. So I'm just going to be shooting for a standard NaNoWriMo this year. If you're interested in what project I'm going to be working on, um, you can go back and listen to um, the Roundtable podcast episode I was in, which I believe was episode 149. Um, I'll go ahead and put up a link in the liner notes for this episode. If you want to go back and listen to that, if you don't listen to the Roundtable podcast, you are missing out. That is probably one of the best writing podcasts I have ever listened to. I want to know what you're doing for NaNo. So comment, send me an email, whatever. If you want to be friends on the NaNoWriMo website, um, my username is Burrito. That's uh, E-L-B-A-R-I-T-O. Um, I'm not overly active, but I do show up, so let's nano together, people. I do want to go ahead and just close this episode out. I've chattered long enough, but I do want to say, uh, as always, thank you for listening. Um, thank you, Nobilis, Julian, and Scott for some excellent stories. And we will see you on November 1st for our next main ingredient episode. So everybody, keep eating and keep writing. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can find our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast or email us at themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it. As long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are from the Free Sound Project, 
and the music is by Drew Rich Creek. <laughs>